This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and welcome to Off Track, the ABC's nature program. If you haven't already picked it, that is the call of the Carnaby's Cockatoo, flying high above the trees in a place called Kokonarab, about 15 kilometres west of Ravensthorpe in the southwest corner of Western Australia. A lot of people living in that part of WA have likely never heard of Kokonarab, but this is a place of ecological significance. It's home to the Carnaby's Black Cockatoo, just for starters, but it's also the site of a horrific massacre. A couple of weeks ago, Fiona Pepper went to visit. It's a chilly September morning and I'm walking through a huge stand of tall and sleek salmon gums. The bark is, of course, the colour of the fish. These trees are critical nesting habitat for the endangered Carnaby's cockatoo. The males have all been out feeding early this morning and all come back to feed. You can hear one chattering up here, begging and getting fed. There. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's the chattering? Yeah. Yep, that's the female begging. That's local farmer Chris Bidoff. He seems to know every tree and track in Kokonarup. And it figures. He's been visiting this spot for decades. It was actually early 1980s when I first um, came in contact with the Carnabies. I was actually in this area picking up a load of jam posts to do some fencing on some new ground. And um, when I turned up to pick up a load of posts that the contractor had cut, Lo and behold, there was these beautiful black and white birds all swirling around in and out the trees, and they were a majestic sight and sound, as you can hear. Since the late 90s, Chris has been tracking carnaby nests here at Kokonarup. And, yeah, it's a very pleasant thing to do in the springtime. Just like Chris, there are many people enamoured with this patch of bush. I'm Rosemary Jasper. I live near Ravensthorpe. I'm also the chairperson of the Coconut Conservation Alliance. What's so special about this area? Well, mainly that it's a salmon gum woodland that's very old. And that's relatively unique because most of the woodlands were cleared through the wheat belt, through the agricultural area. All round here have been cut over for mining or burnt and also cleared for farms. And so this area is, is actually unique. I couldn't find a similar landscape in this area. The salmon gums and these cockatoos are intrinsically linked. The hollows of these towering, shimmering trees provide a perfect nest for the carnabies. And I happen to be here in spring, so Rosemary and Chris are surveying the area for nesting carnabies. Can you describe the carnaby for me? Uh, yeah, they're a large cockatoo, probably mm, 45 to 50 centimetres long. They weigh half to three quarters of a kilo, uh, mostly black with a brown tinge on their feathers when you're up close to them, with white ear patches and white tail feathers. And what about their noise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
quite a loud, raucous squawk, especially their alarm calls. Mm. But other than that, they tend to just chatter between themselves. So you've got this special whistle. Uh, just their <laughs> alarm call. And yeah. Sometimes they call back to you, sometimes they don't. Using a camera stuck to the end of a long pole, Chris and Rosemary take a look inside a salmon gum hollow. So you've just put the camera in and what can we see? Two eggs. Two eggs sitting at the bottom (laughs) of quite a deep hollow. It must be, it looks sort of like about a metre or something from here. Yeah, it's probably down to about here. But it's a perfect hollow, this one. It's got, the female's got plenty of room to sit in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And these trees are probably 250 to 300 years old before they get a hollow big enough. She needs a big platform to sit on, especially with two eggs and mm-hmm. maybe and two, two chicks later on. Plus, she's a big bird, yeah. yeah. So they need at least a 30 centimetre hollow. With eggs tucked deep in a hollow sitting high up in a salmon gum, you'd think they'd be nice and safe. But Chris points out an obvious sign of a predator. Oh, now that's interesting. If you have a look at this tree right here, mm-hmm. see these scratch marks? Yeah. That's probably possum right. claw marks. So they're one of the predators for the eggs and, and very small chicks as well. So a possum knows that she, that a carnaby's nesting and they're trying to get the eggs? Yep, more than likely. One of the other predators are goannas and they'll climb. And so how does she defend her chicks? Ah, oh, she'll sit there and squawk and yeah. flap her wings. Are they and... often successful, though? Uh, well, depends how persistent the predator is, I yeah. guess. So, yeah. Wow. That's another successful hollow for 2021. Yeah. Tree number 101. Chris, Rosemary and their team have tagged a little over 200 salmon gums in this area, which are known nesting sites. One way to establish if they are a nesting site is to put a camera down the hollow like we've just done. The other way is to give the tree a knock, just like this. Doesn't look like anybody's home today. So no carnabies in that salmon gum, but we try another. We... um go to the base of the tree and give it a few taps yep. and a bit of a scratching noise. Yeah. And the carnabies think it's a predator, something like maybe a goanna trying to steal her eggs or something. And then she'll climb up and poke her head out and have a look. Ooh. All right, well, so we're going to go knock on the tree. Give it a sharp tap. Oh, there she is. <laughs> and these hollows are hot property, not only for nesting carnabies. That big one there um, has got galahs in it this year, but one of the branches had carnabies last year. Oh, so they take it in turns with the hollows, or yeah. whoever gets there first? Yeah, and if the galahs get there first, they usually have preference. Right. Because they're quite a uh, aggressive nester, mm-hmm. and they'll chase the others off. Rosemary tells me there's upwards of 200 species that have been found in this area, and around 32 of those use these salmon gum hollows. And it's not just birds either. Bats, reptiles and even pythons have been seen nestled in these deep hollows. 
Both the salmon gums and the Carnaby's cockatoo are endemic to the southwest of WA. But because of extensive clearing, the salmon gum is considered threatened in the nearby Wheatbelt area. The Carnaby's cockatoo that relies so heavily on the salmon gums is also an endangered species. But here at Coconerup, Chris and Rosemary call this place Carnaby Central. And at the moment, we're watching a male and female do a little love dance. They're courting at the moment. Are they? Yeah. How can you tell? His chatter and the way he flares his tail every now and then. Oh, so you're saying he... Oh. Saying, hey, maybe you want to hop into that hollow. Mm-hmm. Something like that. She doesn't look that interested. Mm. It's the male, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You might have to close your eyes shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Before we came out here, brought a group of people out here. Yeah. First thing we saw was a breeding pair in the act. Did they put a performance on? <laughs> so once they have their courting out the way, and then the female is sitting on the eggs for roughly 30 days, Chris explains it's the job of the male. And you can spot the male because of its red ring around his eyes. And it's his job to go out and get food and bring it back to the nest. And what do they generally eat? Uh, in this area, they eat a lot of the acacia seeds, uh, but also, they also love um, hakias. So how the heck they get into these nuts is beyond me. They are solid lumps of wood, the hakia seeds, and they just crack them like cracking peanuts mm. and get two little seeds out of the inside. Um, also, um, there is a number of other seeds and flowers that they chew on, bank shears, they get into bank shears and take the nuts, uh, seeds out of those. And very conveniently, 12 kilometres south of Coconerup, right on the Southern Ocean, is the Fitzgerald National Park. And that national park happens to be a large feeding area for the carnaby. So with nearby food, water and nesting hollows, this is a perfect place for the hundred odd breeding pairs of carnabies that come here each year. The birds usually travel 12, or they think a maximum of 12 to 15 kilometres from their nesting site. So they have to have suitable vegetation for them to feed in that area. And yeah, we are lucky to have the fits just as the crow flies or the carnaby flies, just just across the way. And they're extremely long-lived, aren't they? Yes, they've been known to live 40 or 50 years in captivity, perhaps not quite so long in the wild because they've, uh, they've got a few predators and a lot of cold nights and hot summers. So you've been monitoring this population for 30-odd years. What are some of the changes you've witnessed? Yes, over the years their, their numbers appear to be declining maybe 12 to 15% per year. When I first came and collected jam posts in this area in, 19, in the early 1980s, there was literally hundreds flying around and you could hear them calling for, for miles. And we would see them feeding in the scrub. Sometimes you'd be driving down the road and a mob 
would pick up out of the bush on the side of the road and there'd be dozens of them going in front of you across the road. But Chris says following a recent spate of dry years, you rarely see that level of activity. We would come to the nesting site and you would hardly hear a bird. You would find the females um, incubating their eggs, but very few other birds, loose flies or young, young ones sort of in the area feeding. The males, of course, were out feeding, but they had to spread further because of the dry, dry years because there was no, not a lot of nut produced in those years, so times were a bit tough for the carnaby. The species has undergone an estimated 50% decline in population since the early 1900s. So with habitat destruction, climate change, the carnaby is really up against it. And their natural habitat can't easily be restored either because carnabies won't nest in young salmon gumps. Here's Rosemary Jasper again. Probably more than 200 years to develop one that a carnaby's cockatoo will nest in. Mm. So we're probably um, sitting amongst, oh, oh, there's hundreds of salmon gums here that are hundreds of years old. Yeah, indeed. Some of them, some of the biggest ones that we've measured have got a a girth of 1.2 metres. So they've, they've got to be over 400 years old, I would have thought, those really old ones. Most people would, would describe them as stately. They're smooth barked, and at the moment they're a silvery grey bark, but come summer that peels off and it reveals a salmon coloured bark, mm. which is shining and actually makes this view a whole lot more exciting, even. Clearly, these beautiful pink trees are a lifeline for the carnaby. So this is the breeding area for the carnabies, which is obviously important if it's going to going to continue as a species. And it just needs this sort of area that's got hollows. But Coconarup is not only ecologically rich, beneath the soil sits deposits of gold and lithium. Rosemary says the organisation she chairs, the Coconarup Conservation Alliance, was formed because of the threat that mining poses to the area. The whole area is covered with exploration tenements and at any time they can decide they want to do a bit more drilling, whatever, and that means that they have to come into this sort of area and although Mines Department and the Parks and Wildlife people put conditions on their entry, that in itself is a disturbance in the area. But... It is actually only the precursor to, to mines and we, we simply don't understand why mining companies are allowed in here when to mine in here would be just unthinkable. The Coconarup Conservation Alliance is currently lobbying the WA State Government for this 65,000 hectare area to be classified as A-class reserve and Rosemary hopes that surveys of the Carnaby nesting sites will help this campaign. It's just a matter of of recording that they're here so that we have some chance of convincing the authorities that it's an area that's worth protecting. And this place has even more layers to it. Kokonera has a rich and complex history too. Yes, it's really interesting and it, it really adds to what's unique about this area in that it's got really strong cultural history both Noongar connections and also European settlement story. 
Yeah. And that just, it just makes this place one of the most special in, in this district because there are so many people who relate to it for various reasons. A few kilometres east of the Carnaby nesting sites, I spot a sign on the South Coast Highway. It says, Coconera Memorial. I pull in to have a look. Just off the highway, there's a small gravel car park surrounded by bush. As you get to the entrance to the memorial, there are these two large metal eagle wings and you get an incredible view right across Coconera. Amongst the blooming wildflowers, there are these plaques dotted around a trail. One of the plaques with a quote says, many Noongars today speak with deep feeling about this wild windswept country. They tell stories about the old folk they lost in the massacre. The whole region has bad associations and an unwelcoming aura for them. It is a place for ghosts, not for living people. We were not allowed to talk about Ravensthorpe because it was too horrible what happened out there. Our old people were not allowed to talk about it. The Woods family. I remember hearing stories of people hiding in caves. I heard of Noongar people running and trying to hide and again of being shot as they ran. The Nelly family. So, on this side at Coconera, we find carnabies, we find salmon gums, we find all types of plants and animals that are endemic to this area, but seems to be the site of um, very complex and violent history. My name's Kim Scott. I'm a Noongar, I'm a novelist, I'm an academic. So I've recently been in Ravensthorpe visiting Coconerup. Can you explain your connection to that bit of country? That's part of my ancestral country. I've had family living in what's now the town of Ravensthorpe since before the place was proclaimed. Pre-European settlement, what do you think life would have been like for Noongar people living in that in that area? Well, I think it's a really rich area. The way I know it, there's, it's a place that's infamous as a town for not having enough water, but there's lots, there's lots of water around there. There's amazingly varied topography. It's very diverse in its uh, flora, but also in it, that's because of so many microclimates and everything there. I know there's plenty of evidence of lots of people Noongar people living around there. But yes, there, there's Nama holes or Nama holes, as some people say, with slabs still over them. There's at least one old dance ground around there that I know of. There's ochre quarries where you can walk in and the work faces are of human dimension. Corridors in the ochre and you can just pull out ochre that's like a cosmetic foundation. Um, all those things are evidence of habitation. Clearly, Noongar people lived in the Coconera up Ravensthorpe area for thousands of years. Then, in the 1860s, four Dunn brothers arrived, the first pioneer settlers of the area. 
Kim says when the brothers first arrived, the local Noongars would have instinctually shared information about this isolated and relatively arid landscape. See, I, I believe it's part of Noongar ways to be generous and accommodating. We're all manifestations of the spirit of place. And it's impossible to be conquered. It's impossible to think about someone wanting to do that rather than to become part of the place. But Kim says in the 1870s, the Dunn brothers deeply betrayed this relationship. I think all, all the scholarly paperwork, plus uh, people whose opinions I value, like the late Auntie Hazel Brown, talk about the Dunn's raping a Noongar woman. The Dunn fella was killed because of what he, the way he was behaving with Noongar women. And in fact, again, that's, it was an assassination for breaking the law. That's why he was killed. And so that means Noongars are asserting a way of being in country. These are the rules. The, these are the kinship and the marriage structures. And I would, I would speculate that Dunn was ignorant or chose to be ignorant of all that. And, and the Noongar fella that killed him was acquitted in Albany. And I would imagine that something like that would uh, encourage uh, instincts in the, the Wadjalas to take their own revenge. There's stories from Wadjalas at the time and latter years talking about the Duns um, going out taking turns, you know, and being strategic and killing people. There's newspaper articles about snipers killing Noongars. This is all killing Noongars. There's the talk of poisoning the waterholes. It wasn't until I was an adult that I heard about the massacre as such. So that was never mentioned in my family. Walking through the memorial yesterday, there's quotes from different families about their relationship to Ravensthorpe, the negative connotations or associations because of this history. What do you think the extent of that is? Well, I think it's, I think it's extreme. That's that whole taboo stuff. It's very strong. It's that business of we wind the windows up and we drive through Ravensthorpe as quick as we can. We won't even stop there. That's because of the history of the place. I would argue that's particularly because of not being able to get back there and reconcile oneself to it. How does that impact the relationship to, to country when something so violent has happened on that place? For me, I like, I like this idea and it relates to early contact stuff when I said about Noongars being confident and generous and accommodating. The idea that, that we are, you know, we are each a unique manifestation of the possibility of place. So when I think of flora and fauna that's intrinsic and indigenous to place, it's people as well as flora and fauna. And so we're all blossomings, you know, bloomings, potentialities blooming of those possibilities. And it's about restoring that that nurturing tradition that allows that. So when we go out that way and it's got that hostile history that you would think means finish, it's got incredibly 
endangered country, biologically, flora and fauna, over-cleared mines and everything. It's still, it's not, it's not over. That's, it's not over. There's all, it's a way of belonging and being in country and what you can nurture. And there's different things bloom, different possibilities bloom because of that. I ask him if the resident Carnaby's cockatoo is one of these possibilities. Carnaby's are one among others. Um, Karak, eh? Mm, Karak. Kokanerab, Possibilities of Place, was produced by Fiona Pepper. You've been listening to Off Track. I'm Ann Jones, and join me and the team next week. That's when we'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.